ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub. Hi everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Head, and I am joined today by an interesting trio who have come all the way here to talk to me about monstrous males and fatal females, which is a edited volume that Dr. Rebecca Gibson and Dr. Jay Vanderveen are putting out. And we also have Holly Walters with us, who is one of the contributors to the volume. Hello, guys. Hey. Hello. So before we start talking about this book, because it, it sounds really cool and I can't wait to read it. And I'm sad that I have to wait almost a year before I can have a copy of it. Um, uh, Dr. Gibson, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then Dr. Vanderveen will jump to you, and then Holly will jump to you. So just tell me a little bit about yourselves, and then we'll talk about why you decided to write a book about the undead. Sure. So my name is Rebecca Gibson, and I'm currently a uh, adjunct assistant professor at the University of Notre Dame here in South Bend. And I really have three main research interests, all of which contain some measure of the fantastical. So this is a great podcast for me. Um, my primary one is uh, corsets and what they do to skeletal structure. And I actually have a new book coming out about that later this year in September or October. Excellent. Uh, the second one is robot sex, human robot sexual interactions. And I just published a book on that this past year. And then my third is really looking at gender and the supernatural and how we deal with gender after death, which is what we'll be talking about today. I'm Jay Vanderveen. I'm a professor of anthropology at Indiana University South Bend. And my interest is mostly stems from the enjoyment of zombies and <laughs> Uh, I can tie it somewhat to research interests because I'm a Caribbean archaeologist. And so if, if we're going back to the, the quote unquote real zombies, they're going to get their start um, the way that we know them most commonly in the Caribbean. But my, my own research obviously did not study zombies. What happened was when I come in uh, to, to IU South Bend, I needed to attract students to my classes. And there is no better way to attract students into a 400-level anthropological seminar by saying, zombies! Um, it was a classic bait and switch. They came to the class hoping to see the, the Walking Dead type. And I brought in guest speakers to talk about philosophical issues of zombies, uh, biological issues of zombie parasites. And then we had them do ethnographic studies of, of zombie walks around Halloween. So I really was able to sort of introduce them to anthropology using the lens of zombies. 
I was very interested to see that you were attached to this because Jay is also working on a chapter for an edited volume that I'm involved with. And you presented at our session talking about zombies. And I, I was just simply fascinated. I'm not a zombie fan, but I really do like the cultural tie-ins of the zombies and the way Jay presented it. Um, Holly, you want to tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Holly Walters. I'm a visiting assistant professor in anthropology at Wellesley College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Um, the sort of interest of full disclosure, I did not start off as an anthropologist. I actually started off in medieval history and medieval philosophy, which is where this particular chapter is coming out of, because my actual ethnographic work is in South Asian religion. And I have a book coming out at the end of this year as well, um, which is my first monograph on sacred fossil pilgrimage in the high Himalayas. Uh, we have talked about Shalagram pilgrimage before. Yes. But this particular chapter that I'm writing comes out of the work that I did in medieval history and medieval philosophy, and not so much out of my work in South Asia. That's why, that's why when you said that you were writing... Okay, you said you were writing a chapter on Twitter, and I was just like, ooh, you're writing a chapter. And then I found out what the chapter was for, and I was like, that's not what I remember <laughs> talking about last time, but okay. So no. it seemed very good for me. So, okay, so the topic of this edited volume that's coming out, uh, I did read off the the fun title, The Monstrous Males and Fatal Females. Is that the go-to title, or is that the work-in-progress title? Uh, we're hoping that will be the official title. Our uh, editors at uh, Lexington Press have approved it and everything's on schedule to have it be the title. Um, we really want to interrogate the gender binary and look at what happens to gender after death. So that is the, the second part, the less fun part of the title. It's not less fun. It's just more informative. It's the gender, the supernatural <laughs> beings, and the liminally... I can't say it. Liminality of death. Um, that's, that's, I think, so, you know, that's the informative one. So I'm like, ah, now I know what you guys are going to talk about. So gender, supernatural, and what happens to gender after we die or after yeah. perceived death? So what yes. made you come up with this idea? How did you brainstorm this one? And you were just like, you know, it'd be fun to talk about gender and the dead it really stems from a project we're already involved in um we have an a, a co-authored chapter out under review currently for another edited volume about uh zombies and gender in the world war z universe oh, neat. and this is sort of an expansion of that theme um lexington wrote to me and asked if I would be interested in an entirely different project. And I was already under contract for the project they wanted. And I co I, I like um, reproposed back to them an expansion of the gender and death theme. And I Shanghai Jay into coming along with me. I feel like I, I came in that. as the heavy. Basically she said she has all the really good ideas but she wanted somebody to help sort of keep the the contributors in line. And I said, I can definitely do that part. Oh, so you're the one Holly has to answer to when she turns her uh, edition, her uh, article in late. Absolutely. I'm the bad cop. The bad cop. Well, the, uh, I think what I've got going for me is that mine's actually already written. So 
All I have to do is revise it in a couple of significant respects, but it already exists. So think, you're like way, way ahead of the curve then if I'm looking at the timeline here, which I'm not going to share, but uh, the edited volume should be out. We're thinking late 2021. So probably fall to winter of 2021. Well, it's one of the sample chapters that we're going to be sending to the publisher when we turn in the full proposal and having her contribute like that and being so on the ball has been really helpful. Aw, there you go, Holly. Positive reinforcement. <laughs> Just reminding me to get my stuff in on time. So, Holly is one of 14 authors that you guys are going to have for this book and the topics are going to go all over the place. You've got zombies and vampires and werewolves. Um, non-Western supernatural beings, um, going all the way back to Frankenstein and the original horror novels. You're also touching on uh, modern pop culture. Where does where does the idea of gender get mixed into this? So it's just sort of the lens that we're going to be using to look at this. We could have picked really any theoretical lens. Um, there's really already a brilliant theoretical book out uh, called Vampires and Zombies, Transcultural Migration and Transnational Interpretation that really looks at um, the supernatural and ethnicities or, or worldviews. And I wanted something that would really capture the attention of our audience and also something for which there's a lot of anthropological theoretical backing already. You can really grab onto a whole bunch of gender theories or even just not bring in the heavy theoretical guns, but have this idea of as embodied humans, we carry our genders with us throughout everything we do in life, but we don't give much thought to what happens to that gender after death. And then we add in that supernatural because there are so many worldwide supernatural beliefs that we can really um, use those things to interrogate our own thoughts about our own humanity. So what are you discovering about what happens to gender or our perceptions of gender after not we die, because obviously we'll have no control over it, but how are you, what are you learning from this about what happens to gender when a person dies? It really depends on the supernatural aspect that you're, um, that you're picking up. So I'm also going to be contributing a chapter on vampires and actually we're really vampire heavy. Um, <laughs> but my perspective is going to be different than Holly's perspective and is going to be different from our third author's perspective on vampires because we'll all be looking at different, um, different source material and different cultural perspectives. Um, in our work on zombies, Jay, you want to take this one? Yeah. The, well, before I, I step into that part, it, it's the idea of um, how the, the monsters are being presented in, in typical Western pop culture. We don't hear a lot about the female monsters, right. the, the big three, you know, are the, the werewolves and Dracula and Frankenstein and so on. So what we're trying to do is say, well, there's plenty of other mythologies out there. There's even more popular culture out there outside of just the U.S., how are females, women, people of, of binary gender and non-binary, how are they being represented in these, these, these viewpoints, these monsters? So I'll be looking um, at Zora Neale Hurston, one 
just at, at her own work a little bit and how she's writing. And, and there's, there's a lot of coverage there already, but to her, her zombie um, was a female. So the, the woman that she famously photographed, the woman that she says is, has been zombified in, in the way that the, the Haitian voodoo is doing um, is a woman. But when you watch walking dead, when you watch the, the, you read the comic books, women aren't presented as much um, either as the heroes or even as the villains. So when, when Rebecca and I were working on this, this previous chapter, we sort of sat down and said, let's, let's run through the entire uh, oral history of world war Z and let's pull out all of the times where Max Brooks talks about females. Let's talk about women in this. Um, are they zombies? Are they zombie hunters? Are they the victims? And when they are each of those different roles, what does that do when we're speaking about the larger culture from which this this monster story is supposed to draw? That's interesting. I Just to play devil's advocate, did you do the same kind of analysis when you were looking at the, the male gender? Because I don't think you're going to find any non-binary people in that story at all. We, we didn't have to. Um, Max Brooks kind of did it for us by really forgetting the women. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was out of 44 individual stories in World War Z, there are six women. Oh, that kind of matches up with like actual history, though. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we didn't find non-binary people. But what we did find is that um, the act of death, the act of zombification tends to rob um, the, the human being of their gender perception, of their gender presentation. So the zombies were very rarely referred to as um, as being female or as being any sort of gender orientation at all. On the other hand, if you switch to vampires, I'm going to be looking specifically at two, perhaps three um, movies. And the ones that I'm looking at are Only Lovers Left Alive, which Holly turned me on to. Thank you, Holly. You're most welcome. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. And I'm going to be looking at um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, which is both uh, a female vampire and it's a female directed Iranian movie. And it's just fantastically brilliant. And I may add in Let the Right One In. Mm -hmm. uh, but th that movie was very odd and I'm not sure I want to analyze it. So I haven't quite decided yet. <laughs> with, with that, with Let the Right One In, I would really recommend the book over the movie um and the book is strange but you have to remember it's being translated too so there's True. definitely something being lost there um yeah. i enjoyed the book though but yeah you could definitely do something on that one um so yeah so we're jay we'll go we're gonna go back to zombies here probably later in the segment but holly you are yes. one of the vampire writers i am the book and you and i were briefly going over uh what you what you're going to contribute to this edited volume so tell us about so you mentioned that you were doing medieval studies and you told me something really interesting about the gender of the original vampires can you explain that again for the audience yeah. So one of the things that I paid particular attention to is the the overall work that I'm looking at is looking at the vampire as a repository symbol over time. So I start sort of back in the late classical antiquity 
into the Middle Ages and then into the early modern period. And one of the things that I... When you say repository vessel, what are you meaning there? So it's acting, the the core of my argument is that the vampire as a symbol is acting as a repository for for social and cultural fears that societies have about themselves. Okay. And so that changes depending on what cultural context the vampire happens to be represented in. Uh, But is, as my argument goes, but is essentially maintaining this kind of repository of the moral panic. And one of the things that I pay particular attention to in in this particular chapter is the fact that in late classical antiquity and into the early part of the Middle Ages, the vampire was something conceptualized as being distinctly female. So they were not human at this particular point in time. They don't come from humanity. They're a sort of night-roaming evil spirit who attacks people at their most vulnerable um, but it is very distinctly conceptualized as female, which I and find that's some, yeah. I mean, basically the the Eastern European and classical Greek vampire are women, right. um, but, but not human. But not human. Um, then, in and about the middle part of the Middle Ages, this is going to drastically shift, and the vampire is going to be distinctly represented as male. Now, is this a direct influence of the rise of Christianity, or is there something else happening here? Oh, no, this is absolutely at the feet of the Roman Catholic Church. All right. Um, <laughs> this, this has a lot to do with the ways in which the Roman Catholic Church in the early part of the Middle Ages begins to adopt local folklores and begins to essentially assimilate various kinds of local folklores. And the vampire, in this case, begins to represent different kinds of gendered fears. Um, the original vampire has a lot more to do with dangerous feminine sexuality, this sort of concept of a life-draining force being associated with women. And now the vampire is shifting more into sort of a demonic character associated with the Christian devil, who now preys upon vulnerable women who are susceptible to his charms. It's interesting that you mentioned that the original vampires are considered female, non-human, but female. Because I'm thinking of a couple vampiric-like figures that I know of from um, uh, Japanese, Korean, and Filipino mythology. And they're all female as well. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. So that that's an interesting idea of this uh well i think two of them are they they'll drink blood but they're specifically drinking like the blood of infants and that kind of a thing yeah the vampires in those cases tend to have more of a connotation of life draining capabilities they're not necessarily strictly blood drinkers in the way that the western vampire is conceptualized but there's a lot of for example the chinese vampire is a breath drinker um the Filipino vampire is also a kind of breath life force drinker. So it's it's slightly different, but I think the connotation still holds. Right. I mean, it's still the idea of a vampire. It's still leeching off of you. Yeah. Um, so I want to take us to break real quick. And when we come back, I would like to bring this back around to the zombies again, because I think we have a big discussion about gender here in a second. Honey, bloke's 
You will see our staple of This independent tale. podcast is listener-supported, and we'd like to take a minute to thank our Patreon supporters. Elizabeth Wilk, Grace Vaughn, Cassia Neal, Jasmina Kokurik, Penny Head, Adamo Brzuri, Armin Sell, Brent Murphy, Brian Goody, Carl the Italian Sagan, Crystal Sanchez, Craig Cruz, Darian Duke, Donald E. Mundus, Greenish, Ellie, Heath Anderson, Kate Swanson, Kimmy Moss, Laurel Kirstick, Lizzie B., Michael Ball, Michael Murphy, Nathan Andrew Leeflight, Nuclear Cat, Pamela Ebby, Paul Meager, Randall Gatz, Sean Underwood, Sid February, Stephen Grenant, Takashi Toyota, Teppo Cedar, Tim Hoff, and Timothy Schreiner. Thanks for the Kofis too. Kenny Baker, Um, Hi Jay, Laurie Jensen, and Groom Porter. Thanks to all our new supporters on Patreon. And if you'd like to join them, just look for Archie Fantasies on Patreon, or you can donate to us one time on Kofi. Thanks again for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still discussing gender and the undead and i wanted to bring us all back to zombies because the second most popular creature out there i actually i think zombies are more popular than vampires right now Ooh, um, you don't want to start a fight <laughs> yeah <laughs> personally i'm a more of a vampire fan but i mean there's a lot of zombie shows out there right now <laughs> so that's the I only mean, reason I why i'm like there's more zombies than vampires right now I did vampire live action role playing when I was younger, but I've yeah. come around to the zombie idea. I do. I do love a good LARP, um, which, you know, we could actually talk about the LARP as well, because there was a lot of odd sexual undertones and gender <laughs> undertones in that game, too. Especially oh, I mean, terms. I played pretty much throughout my teenage years in high school. I played the World of Darkness Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah role-playing yeah, yeah. game and so much so like i actually do even mention it in the chapter um that when that came out which was also in the early 90s a lot of those over those sexual overtones are still there oh yeah i haven't checked out the newest iteration of it uh just because i don't play it anymore but um yeah i, I distinctly remember a lot of people who I ran with in, in high school. Now, keep in mind, I ran with the weird kids because I am one of the weird kids. But uh, we all were. A lot of them, yeah, a lot of them used uh, the motifs out of vampire as a way of defining them their sexuality, um, which I find interesting as a role player. But I that, wore that's... fangs all throughout high school. <laughs> had fangs every day. I love it. I had a set. I'm not gonna lie. I had a set. Uh, but I put mine in with dental wax so that they could come out after the weekend. Yeah, we were the weird kids. <laughs> so back to zombies, though. <laughs> zombies are interesting because, um, like everything, we can trace it back to becoming popularized by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Maybe not exactly how we recognize them today. But Lovecraft did have this idea of walking undead, and it was, of course, tied back into the mythos. And Jay, you mentioned uh, Romero's movies, which I recall seeing connected back as being an homage to Lovecraft's idea of walking undead. Are you familiar with that at all? I haven't. Um, I've. I read Lovecraft in eighth grade and never picked it up after that. <laughs> wow. See how you are. I know. <laughs> but this is a reason to go back and, and, uh, an expense account, a whole bunch of new books, I guess. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Free books are always good. Um, but yeah, I was told that the Romero movie was kind of a Lovecraftian homage, but you were bringing it up as, um, 
a demonstration of how, like you said, that the zombie is a blank canvas and it can represent our fears at the time. And Romero's zombies, you said, were caused by radiation. Yeah, the the idea was, and and when these are going off, this is the Cold War, and everybody's afraid of of the atomic bombs. Um, so his zombie in, in the original movie didn't have a a clear origin, and these were ghouls, and people were sort of pontificating on television and saying, "Oh, I, we think it's it's probably because of these radiation poisoning, and or something came down from space." because it's also that particular time in, in our social context as well. So the idea, though, is, is that the zombies are kind of this reflection on whatever it is that, that we're afraid of in our current time. Um, this, this idea of finding a blame and tying it to the social context isn't purely related to even zombies. Um, uh, Rick Wilk from IU wrote an article way back in the day where he's, he did the same type of a thing with the collapse of the Maya. So he looked oh, at kind of a, a meta-analysis of the academic articles describing how the Maya collapsed. And I'm, I'm using quotes around collapse, of course. Right, yeah. And, it, you know, in the 70s, it was environmental collapse because that's what we were seeing. In the 80s, it was collapse because of war between tribes, which is what we were seeing in the Cold War and so right. on. So so the Maya were, were in this way, kind of a, a proxy for the things that we were concerned about. And uh, I think yeah. the, the same can be true on zombies. The mythical vanished Maya race who never really actually vanished. They're still around today. Thank exactly. you for bringing that up. I got to work that into almost like every podcast. Um, <laughs> but you do mention how, you know, the zombies are a reflection of the fears of the time. And so when we jump forward to the late 80s and the early 90s, you know, we had the AIDS epidemic, I think was at its peak right about yeah. there or getting to its peak. Um, and so there's an interesting overlap between the zombies now representing a um, unchecked infectious disease that, you know, you now you can catch zombieism um, if you're scratched or bitten. I don't remember how Romero's passed their zombie stuff on, but I don't really think it mattered. I think it was just a horror movie. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so am, am I right with the whole, the, the zombies became a contagion at that point or around that point, an identifiable contagion? Yep. They were, they were passing it on, and um, just as you explained. And I think people have, have written dissertations on Romero, um, <laughs> and it's one of those things where I bet if we had asked him and really held his hands to the fire, he would have said, dude, it was cheap. You're right. <laughs> I'm making a cheap <laughs> film. Monster movies play, you know, you can, you can tie it to Lovecraft, you can tie it to the social commentary, but it was cheap. I could film it in black and white and it's this, it's this slow moving monster. So I didn't have to have a lot of special effects. And that was my movie. <laughs> and it was a, it was a good movie. It's really stuck with, you know, culture in, in general. I mean, it's the first movie almost everybody watches or gets around to if they become a horror aficionado of any variety. But the whole idea of the contagion and to tie this back to Holly and the moral panic, um, you were mentioning 
that around this time is when vampires became contagious. Yeah. So one of the, I think, most fun and most grueling parts of actually writing this chapter was that I sat down and I picked out sort of between 10 and 15 popular iconic movies, vampire movies of each decade beginning in and around the 1960s. And so the filmography for this is probably actually longer than the (laughs) bibliography for this um, because it's a ton of movies. But one of the things that that I really started to notice is when you watch vampire movies that have all been made within roughly five to 10 years of each other, a lot of those themes really, really start to jump out at you. And one of the things that I started to notice was beginning in the late 1980s and then really kind of hitting its stride in the early to mid 1990s in vampire horror film genres, we now have a vampire who transmits their contagion via bite. Um, It's not so much anymore where you have to drink their blood, where there's some kind of element of coerced choice involved. Now it's just a contagion. Um, And this in particular can spread to men as well. So the vampire themselves begins to take on the, not only these homosexual connotations in terms of their sexuality, but now they can actually spread this contagion via the sexualized bite. And uh, Rebecca, you were, touching on this a little bit too with your chapter are you not yes definitely um so with only lovers left alive it's it's really fantastic because there's a move into a family dynamic from that idea of only sex you also get siblinghood um and then with uh, a girl walks home alone at night, you have a revenge aspect, but you also still have that sexual aspect because the revenge in this case is against people who use women. Um, I had already discussed Holly's chapter with her, so I avoided most <laughs> of the films that she's looking at. Um, but honestly, my childhood was all about Anne Rice. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And we have, like we have the vampire Lestat as personification of that gay panic contagion aspect. And then we have uh, the vampire child, Claudia, also as that family aspect. So you do get a lot of the same themes repeated um, with just much more recent developments. Uh, The two movies that I'm looking at are in fact relatively recent within the last 10 years. And I think one of the things that probably really goes along well with Only Lovers Left Alive, which obviously is one of my favorite vampire movies to date, is the fact (laughs) that humans have now become a kind of contagion to the vampires. Uh, That humans are becoming poisonous through our modern technological living. Um, it's not something I get into in, in my chapter, but I, I definitely notice these themes of sexuality and contagion um, really, really mirroring the AIDS epidemic in the early 1990s and then transforming once again in and about 2001, not shockingly, into the vampire of violence. Yeah, yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. A lot less entertaining to my in my opinion, but... I like a good in-depth torture, like emotional torture story where we must live the darkness inside of us. Well, Use my God name. I mean, they um, all kind of have that anyway, but it's just kind of varying degrees. 
Now, here's an interesting one. Um, 28 Days Later. Are we all familiar with yes. this movie? Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I know of it. Okay. I I personally... Okay, I, I like the. Re- I did not like it, and I also enjoyed it on two different levels. Um, and I think I'm thinking about the sequel that I did not like. Was that 28 weeks later? I did not like see that one. I've seen Correct. 28 Days Later. Don't see the sequel. <laughs> Got it's it. Not anywhere near as good. It's just like gratuitous violence for the sake of gratuitous violence, and it's just not good. Um, but. One of the interesting things that I noticed in this kind of piggybacks on what you were saying earlier about the humans were becoming toxic to, um, come on, I can do this, to the vampires, the zombie-ish characters, because they kind of, in my opinion, they kind of straddled both vampire and zombie-ishness in their creation in the movie. But they weren't really the villains of the movie. Like, they weren't really the overarching evil force in 28 Days Later. That's a point with the movies that I'm going to be looking at, too, is that, um, as Holly mentioned about Only Lovers Left Alive, the humans are toxic. There's that whole thing with gloves, which is going to take some really interesting evaluation. And then in um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night... Like I said, she's a vigilante. She's going on revenge here. And it's the humans who are screwing everything up, being abusive, doing drugs, um, being immoral. And she is she's the moral um, center of the entire city. So there's an interesting shift happening here then as the movies are progressing through time where the monsters are becoming, in a way, follow me the moral compass because the people are too corrupt. Jay, do you see that kind of a thing theme in modern zombie movies as well? I'd have to think about the zombies, but when you both are talking about this particular issue, Frankenstein's monster yeah. comes quickly to mind. Oh yeah. Where he's not the bad guy. No. You know, he's, he's <laughs> well, depending on your particular take, but, um, the masses are bad. The creation of him was bad. The people with pitchforks are bad. He was, some people see him as a, a reflection of innocence. Um, but the, the thing about, so are zombies ever corrupted by humans would be an interesting take. I'm trying to run through my kind of Rolodex of, of popular culture zombies because the inherently evil like i'm thinking of the walking dead ones and they're they're not evil they're just like base animalistic they're driven right so they've got their particular instinct and that's what they're following it's the humans that are using the either the fear of zombies to accumulate power or zombies themselves and this is in the, the the current season of walking dead on television where you've got the whisperers and they're using the zombie horde to get what they want. So they're, they're using the zombies as a tool. Um, so I think that does tie into this idea where, where the zombies in the movie type zombies, they're, they don't really have a motivation of evil. Mm-mm. They're just purely just to survive. Which I guess um, you could argue is a form of innocence. I mean, if we were to yeah. compare that to modern day animals, you know, animals are not inherently evil. 
They're just. I mean, and there's also, I think you can exactly. talk about to some degree in both the vampire and the zombie genres about this rising theme of natural retribution. Um, that for zombies and vampires, the ways in which they're created and the ways sort of in which they kind of bring about the apocalypse is sometimes almost seen as being righteousness against how bad humans have been. Right. Like a cleansing or a, you know, you like, uh, like Rebecca was saying earlier, um, the character has become the moral center of the city, even though she is the monster, she's cleansing the evil out of the city but the city brought it upon itself apparently by having these people that they were not punishing properly in the first place and if if we look into the reality behind some of these myths so the the caribbean uh zombie that's somebody who has been turned into that form by the evil human so this is the the bokor the the priest that is changing the zombie to suit his or her needs, turning them basically into a slave. And and therefore it's not the zombie that's at fault here. It's the human. Although, and it, this kind of links to what Holly was talking about with this idea of, of the, the general cross-cultural boogeyman, the, the grief eater, the tear drinker, the swallower, swallower of, of sighs and sadness. That would be an interesting investigation as well. Those are all just really cool titles to be doing. Yes, they are. More of uh, books. Um, yeah, let's go to. I know we keep doing breaks real quick, but like I want to start a larger topic, and we don't have enough time to get into it in this segment. So let's go to break, uh, and I will try to collect my thoughts, and we will be right back. Digging in a trench, monuments. Going to the pub when the we hope you're enjoying spent. this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes Funny at www.archiefantasies.com for further information about our hosts, guests, and topics in this episode. This podcast is listener-supported, and we appreciate every donation, either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode, or monetarily on Patreon and Ko-fi. You can connect with us on the blog, by email, or on Twitter, thanks to all of our supporters. And let's get back to the show. Now I'm going to start recording. Now I'm going to count to five silently. And we are back and we are still discussing vampires and zombies and all things supernatural. Well, not all things, but all things undead and supernatural and the intersection of gender. And one of the things I kind of want to just briefly talk about or or until we get tired of talking about it, I guess, um, non-binary gender representation in the monsters. Like we've discussed how vampires are inherent, where they started off inherently female, not human, but female. And then they've gradually turned into a very masculine symbol. Um, Jay, you were mentioning that like when zombies become zombies, or at least this is what you and Rebecca found, is that they lose their gender once they become zombies? It appears that when we're looking for this, they don't carry on the same gender roles. So in other words, um, who plays the, the mother? Do zombies have maternal instincts? Are zombies 
foraging for their family? And, and once you get family groups, do you have particular sort of traditional gender roles? Zombies in, in the main literature, there's always, of course, the internet rule number 42 or whatever. Um, <laughs> but zombies don't frequently, aren't shown having sex. So the idea of, of sexual orientation. Um, oh man, you are just not reading the right book. I know, so I'm <laughs> on purpose. I am on purpose avoiding those particular things. <laughs> but in, in most of the movies and most of the, the graphic novels and most of the representations, what we're looking at to try to identify, is there a gender in zombies? It's what role do they play? What are they doing aside from just that drive to consume. And really what we, what oh, go we ahead. Found, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. What we found is that um, they don't have those roles because they are just that drive to consume. But the external people, the survivors, are also not giving them those roles. So when there's discussion of zombies from survivors, what we found is that they either use a neutral term or an initial, in World War Z, they were called Zs or Gs for zombie or ghoul, um, but they were also called Zack. So they were semi-masculinized. What but, was the Zack short for? Uh, it, was, it was an extension of the initial Z. And this oh, is something okay. that's done in wartime a lot. Um, so for like World War Two, you have uh, what Jerry the Kraut. Thank you. Exactly. And uh, Charlie the Viet Cong in Vietnam. Right. So you're given these masculine names to put a blank face on your opponent. And it's just a stand in. They're not actually thinking of them as men or male. It's just like these are the enemy and this is what we're going to call them. But they didn't. They didn't pick any female names for the zombies in this particular mythology. That's interesting with the zombies because modern zombies are dead people who have been reanimated. Um, I know that's not like the religious zombie, but that's like the pop culture zombie. Right. But when you deal with um, ghosts, uh, and even demons, when you're doing when like people do the the ghost hunting, haunting hunts, and that kind of stuff. Ghosts do maintain their gender. They they do maintain their pronouns. Um, so if, if there was, the, you know, the woman in white, um, there'll be an angry man who lives in the attic. Uh, even demons are almost always referred to as a he, I've noticed in these types, the, the Ghost Hunter TV shows. So yeah, definitely. Even when they're masquerading as, as a female. Like with, um, I keep bringing up the Annabelle doll because it's the thing I researched earliest. And hmm. the, the Annabelle doll they thought was possessed by the spirit of a little girl, but really the spirit of the little girl was just a facade for the demon that wanted to possess other people. And the demon is usually referred to in male terms. So it's interesting to me that all of these other non-living undead entities maintain their gender but the zombies don't i wonder why that is absolutely and we're hoping that that's one of the things that we're going to get from some of our other authors we do have uh chapters on frankenstein we have a chapter on the corpse bride um somebody's looking at haunted houses there's going to be a chapter on succubi and then we've got an entire section on sort of 
concentrating more on social death necessarily than physical death. So we have an author who's looking at Hindu widow widowhood and how you remain tied to your male spouse after death. Um, we've got a couple of cyborg chapters. So this social death that occurs when you, um, when you transform into something that isn't quite human or give up some of your humanity to the robotic portions of your body. Um, I personally am looking very much forward to the chapter on the recent Netflix original series, Love, Death and Robots. I did not know about that one, but I will be looking it up. You will have to watch it. It is gloriously done. Um, and there's a lot of cyborg transformation and cyborg imagery in that particular show that's really going to shine in terms of this concept of social death. That's really interesting because, you know, we're talking about the ability to s switch or move between gender or not even have gender. I remember it was a prime show. Good God, now that I want to say it, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, they had this chip in the back of their neck. It was very sci-fi. They had a chip at the back of their neck, and that actually was like – that's where you were stored, like your mentality and your life and all of your memories were stored in this chip. And the whole concept was is when your body died, you, that chip could be removed and placed into a brand new body. Are you talking about altered carbon? Thank you. Yes, altered carbon. Yeah. But there's some really funny scenes in altered carbon where um, – well, one of the main characters' wife, her chip gets put into a male body, and so they kind of have to negotiate. They're they're still they still have husbandy wifey feelings towards each other, but they're both men, and they're not, clearly not gay either of them. So that was an interesting idea because it's like, are are you gay? Like, does does being does having a female brain and a male body are you are you gay or are you not gay because now you're a man and you're you're not attracted to men. And then there was another one where uh, another Star main... Trek. Hmm? Star Trek: The Next Generation actually did that one first. Oh yeah, no, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and like Simpsons did it, Star Trek did it. Um, but there was another really cute scene where the female main character had the chip of her grandmother put into rando body that she had available at the precinct, and it was. Uh, a man's body and he was a big burly dude with all the tattoos and the piercings and you know and she brought him home for a family dinner because it was a holiday and the grandmother was just tickled pink to be in this man's body and she still spoke uh spanish and she still talked as if she was an old woman and then she like goes to the bathroom and she's like i have to stand to pee and it was really funny <laughs> but it's that kind of an idea like um do you see that kind of like Clearly, we can. We only really see it right now with cyborgs and and androids and things that could be fluid in gender because they don't really have a gender necessarily to begin with. Is that how they're usually perceived? So, genderless until assigned. That's a difficult question to answer because. We're, you know, we definitely want to be clear on the distinction between sex and gender and the way that the body interacts with gender identity and the way the body affects gender presentation. Right. So um, with what I found when talking about cyborgs or with talking about 
uh, robotics, androids, AI, is that we have this tendency to gender the beings according to their their sexual presentation, their sex presentation. Right. Um, and even if they, the beings themselves don't inherently have one, like if they don't, if it's, if it's a gray box and all you're seeing is a gray box, we will assign something out of our own minds because that's what we do. So, um, yeah, like in, in one of the chapters, um, the author is going to be talking about Elliot de Baudard's um, universe that has spaceships, which have uh, sort of functional sentient AI. Mm-hmm. And this particular AI, as from what I recall from reading the story, is female. Um, so, yeah, again, tough question. Not really, not really sure how that one's going to pan out, but it's going to be very interesting. Houses, haunted houses are given that female yes. uh, attribution, whether, so they don't have any parts, right? But right. but the, almost all the time, the haunted house is going to be female. Um, and aliens would be an interesting one because we're only assigning to them what we know of terrestrially. Right. They probably have all sorts of different sex, both uh, in, this, in the terms of gender and biological sex. Right. So we do have a, a chapter on... on do we have one on aliens? We do not. Oh, bummer. No, we should. We should ask for another. Yep. No, we should not. <laughs> Absolutely not. This is that pro. That's awesome. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Uh, no, I think that's going to be really interesting. I'm I'm running a Cyberpunk 2020 game right now, and I, that was actually a conversation that most of my players had when we were gunning characters. Was this with uh, Cyberpunk 2020? You can randomly roll everything. And of course, the game was written in 92. So before the whole non-binary thing really became a recognized social thing. So you're still stuck with either male or female, like that's all you get. But you also have, you can be a male player and your character because of the random generation gets very femaleish traits or very feminine traits. And so I've had a couple of my players get um, mixed roles between their, their, their real life gender and their character's gender. And it's interesting watching them negotiate. And I'm not saying anybody's doing a bad job, but they're all just like, Oh, this will be really interesting. How do I do this? And so they're finding a way to do it as opposed to complaining about it, which nobody's doing. Um, so that's going to be very interesting to me to see how in a world, cause the whole point of the game is like, um, Rebecca was saying earlier, adding on machinery to yourself, you know, you lose humanity as you put more cybernetics into your character. So your character actually has a humanity rating that drops the more hardware you have. So it's like, you get to a point where you, are you man? Are you machined kind of a thing? Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. So I, I've, I'm very interested to see your cyborg and your robot chapters, um, which will unfortunately be out after I'm done running my game, but still, <laughs> it will be very interesting to read and reflect on. Um, so you, we, I think we sort of kind of said this, but what exactly are your other 
So we've got Holly on here and we've got you two. So that's three out of 14. So who are your other 11 chapters? What are the topics of them? Can you tell us? The topics definitely. Um, so we're having one author do an overview. She gave us a really broad abstract and it was perfect for sort of giving an intro into what we, what the current thoughts and theoretical leanings of this idea of humanity and gender and where does it go after you die. Um, so that's going to be our, basically our first chapter. We're moving in then to the love, death and robots chapter and then to spaceships and then Holly's with vampires. Um, we have a second vampire chapter that, oh, let's see if we can find the actual topic. Vampire in Uberai. Thank you. Yes. I think that's an African tradition. Eastern European. Sorry. You're right. Eastern European tradition. Um, and then my chapter on vampires and uh, those movies. We have a chapter on Frankenstein and uh, feminism, which is going to be fascinating. Our authors for that have actually done extensive work in the topic of Frankenstein and feminism. Um, it's a co-authored chapter, and one of the authors is a filmmaker oh, neat. who did a really, really fantastic feminist reimagining of Frankenstein. Very cool. Um, then we have The Corpse Bride. Then we have African Zombies. Uh, Jay's chapter on Zora Neale Hurston. A chapter on Haunted Houses. And then finally, um, a chapter on Succubi, which will be fascinating. And a chapter on uh, sexual attraction to the undead to sort of cap everything off. That's fair. That's fair. Did you find or are you finding that the um, the gender identification of your authors, is that affecting their chapters, like how they perceive or how they're going at the way they write their chapter? Huh. I think we're going to have to defer until later um, <laughs> because um, except for Holly, uh, nobody else has written their chapters yet. <laughs> We do have so we're going to submit two sample chapters with the um, with the full proposal. Our second sample chapter is going to be that Frankenstein and feminism chapter. Okay. Um, and I, I'm not going to name names at this no, point, fine. but our two our two authors for that chapter are strong, vocal, public feminists, and uh, they really walk the walk on being advocates and allies. Um, for women, for basically every other uh, area of, of less privilege in society. And their chapter is going to be very strong in terms of looking at that gender balance and looking at why um, Frankenstein himself, uh, sorry, the monster himself is male. And what we get after that is female appendages to the monster. We get the Bride of Frankenstein, all of that stuff. So um, I can tell you that it, it is a uh, male-female author pair. Okay. And they bring a really great balance to their writing. It's going to be spectacular. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And Holly, I'm also very much looking forward to your chapter. Um, so... Okay, well, so we've all played vampire for Jay, apparently. Um, sorry, Jay. 
so what do we think about, because it's something we can all talk about, and even Jay, you can jump in, I'm, I'm sure. What do we think about sexuality of vampires being presented there? Because that was a very 90s-centric game. Is that very what? 90s-centric yeah, game. Yeah, very much so. And it was very much influenced by Anne Rice. Like her, yeah. her yeah. style of vampire was very evident in that. But the game itself uh, took the stance that you don't have a pumping heart, ergo no erection for you. So they And yet they not... actually walked that back by second they ed. Did. They, they did. did. I was kind of disappointed by that. But initially uh, they did not have a physical biological function for sex in the game it was actually like you can't you can spend the blood to do it if you want to but why i mean yeah i mean essentially what they were setting up was something very common i would say in the vampire mythos in general which was the substitution of the bite or the kiss for the sexual act right and that that's a very anricean kind of thing to do yes and then in and about second ed, because their first edition was very, very much like that, where it's like, you don't have any sort of biological reaction, you are dead. Like, it, it is now all focused on the kiss. Um, and But by second ed, they're sort of like, eh, okay, I guess if you want to, you can. Yeah, I think really the sexual aspect comes in less with the game mechanics than it does with the players themselves. Right. I know that my gaming groups were all highly sexually charged and <laughs> everybody knew why everybody else was there. And <laughs> it, was, it was fun, but it was also, it had that air of danger because we were doing that at night. And, well, and also you're um, generally a bunch of teenagers. Uh, and, okay. Right. Nothing exactly. I don't know what you're talking about. What could possibly go wrong with a room full of teenagers <laughs> on a Saturday night until three in the morning? Um, all pretending to be vampires. But they right. they did, even though they removed the physical ability to have to procreate, um, they still, you know, had that pleasure drive in there with again, like the kiss, you know. But because of that, you didn't have to worry about, you know, if you drink from a man or if you drink from a woman, because you're not having sex you're just biting them and drinking blood and even though it is supposed to be the replacement for that act it wasn't necessarily seen that way i think well at least with the groups that i played with like guys <laughs> oh would and the groups i played with it was blood. absolutely the same thing <laughs> I, I think there was a lot there of was like lot exploration of... of sexuality through that idea as well yeah Right. There was a lot of suppressed uh, homoerotic and homosocial tension going on in the groups that I was in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think I mean, it was... I, Go ahead. I think it's also easy to say that, I mean, obviously Vampire the Masquerade was kind of written for an older teenage, you know, young college sort of audience to begin with. Right. And you could sort of tell in and about their second edition that they kind of knew that and were running with it in terms of here is a group of people who are also themselves now just ex exploring their own sexuality. We're going to do it in game as well. Yeah. And they, they definitely like added in the mechanics for it. And I know that was just like, we're not even going to talk about my vampire group. Cause no, <laughs> but 
I do know that that was a very welcomed addition, shall we put it. Um, Did any of you do the other, like the the side projects that World of Darkness or White Wolf had? Uh, So there was Mage and Werewolf and... uh, Changeling. Changeling. Changeling, thank you. I I was was a huge Werewolf the Apocalypse fan. That was actually my go-to game. I liked to live roleplay Vampire, but I loved to tabletop um uh werewolf that was my absolute favorite um yeah I, see my group my group was like huge into changeling like we had just massive changeling buffs in mind yeah i and there was one group there was a group of mage players but the the game mechanics for mage annoyed the crap out of me so i never bothered with it. the game mechanics for mage were awful yeah. but the optics were fun yeah the idea was fun it was just trying to play the freaking character and then you're just like ah, i'm a mage i can just uncreate reality because the game allows right. me to do it really no you can't you can't cause the world to go <laughs> so anyway <laughs> like no really i can't i see it says right here in the book <laughs> i you know going back on the looking at sexuality in those two games though um werewolf took away the or at least in werewolf the mat or werewolf the masquerade here we go uh, werewolf of the Apocalypse removed the infected bites from werewolves. You had to be born a werewolf now. Yeah. So that was interesting. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, it, they did. You could get a gift. So the werewolf magic powers were con- were called gifts, and you were gifted them by the moon. There's a lot of problems. <laughs> Most of them revolving around Native American imagery. Um, but... You could pick up a gift for your werewolf to have an infectious bite, so you could pass on werewolfism through your bite, but uh, that was very rare. You had to be born a werewolf, and you could be born in one of three forms. Like, you could be born in an animal form, so you're basically a wolf that turns into a human. You could be a human that turns into a wolf, or you could be born in the in-between form. And... um. Yeah, we're going to leave it at that for there. But <laughs> mainly because I don't want to insult anybody. <laughs> for uh, Mage, you had the uh, followers of ecstasy. That was that was the sexual mm-hmm. aspect. Mm-hmm. What was Changeling like? Did you have to be... Because I never played Changeling either. Changeling had... Um, I mean, the sort of thing about Changeling is that Changelings are ultimately human. Uh, they're human-bodied, but with a face soul. Okay. And so in that respect, changeling sexuality was not necessarily a really overt part of the game because you're a person, ultimately. Yeah, so it was just, like, normal. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, where changeling tended to sort of play around with that conceptualization, I would have to say was less about sexuality and, in fact, more about gender because your fae soul was not always in alignment with your human body. Interesting. Uh, so I would say, I mean, Changeling was also their much later game. Uh, Changeling, I don't think, was first published until the late 90s. Yeah, it was one of the last uh, and then in, out. And then into the early 2000s. So one of the things I think Changeling, out of all of White Wolf's repertoire, really starts to get into is more of the trans experience, the non-binary experience, as being reflected in the mechanics of the game. I definitely agree with that. Mm. Yeah, no, they definitely started to explore those topics a lot more in their later games. Um, 
what's the one they they actually published something that was called i believe angels and demons or something like that and yeah they did a bit of a foray uh it didn't really pan out for them so well no i've read i've read the books they're terrible i'm I'm sorry i'm a white wolf fan and these books were terrible um but yeah they uh but in those i think you are i I do believe you are completely genderless your characters if i recall correctly yes at all like you have no sex drive and you have no gender like that's just because you're not a human you are a manufactured being which again goes back to the idea of um cyber uh, cyborgs and and that kind of thing yeah i can't i'm blanking on the name of the game but i remember exactly which one you're talking about i'll remember Um, i'll actually look it up once i get off of here but yeah because i have the book i just am too lazy to get up to my bookshelf so and I would definitely say like that that was one of their much later ones, kind yeah. of early mid aughts. Um, definitely more along the lines of like the cyborg and the robot, but in this case, kind of a you're right, like a manufactured divine being. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that one didn't go over so well because they were like directly dealing with religion, which is a whole other topic. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, most people did not did not go for that one. No, that one didn't do very well. All right, I. Is there anything, and we'll start with Jay because we haven't let him talk for the last like five minutes here. Uh, <laughs> Jay, do you have any final thoughts about anything we've talked about so far on the show that you would like to share before we go off air? No, I'm just looking forward to, to reading the, the commentary and, and getting these different ideas of, of mythology. Um, and I'm particularly excited that when we put out the call for, for papers, we received those that are outside just the U.S. popular culture. Oh, so that made me really happy that we've got, you know, Eastern European, African, uh, the Caribbean diaspora. We've got people from all over the place. And I want to know more about the world and not just the stuff we see on TV. Yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed with the ethnic spread that you have in your supernatural creatures. It's It's good, I feel like, because I think people forget that other cultures have superstitions or at least like strong superstitions that are not just goofy i guess is the way to put it that's a good way to put it when you see it represented in our society it's always oh ha 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 the superstition but demons are real and it's just like you agree (laughs) that's just as ridiculous as what you just laughed at so yeah that's kind of there was a so um February 2nd was recent and Trevor Noah did a bit and it's like, y'all are telling the weather by pulling this gopher out of a hole. If we did that in Africa, you would laugh uh-huh. at us. But you guys think that's totally but cool. I'm so. from Pennsylvania. I, I will stand up for Puxatonic <laughs> Phil. He's adorable. I think he's also like Puxatonic Phil, like the third or something like that. And I think he's Phil. I don't think they live real long. No, they don't no. live very long. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But he has a point. He really does have a point. <laughs> um, Rebecca, do you have any final thoughts before we go off? I do not. I have to run for my tattoo appointment. Oh, <laughs> well, that's, that's completely valid. I have no final thoughts. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. I don't want to keep you late. Holly, any final thoughts for you? Uh, mostly, I would just say that 
for a lot of scholars, um, particularly those of us who don't normally write on these topics, this is a really fun opportunity. Uh, like I said, I primarily work on religion in South Asia, but now I'm going to publish something about vampires, and I'm very much looking forward to doing that. Yeah, I'm. I've been wanting you to do this since we met. So, like I said, this paper has existed in some iteration for like ten years now. At this point. Ah, uh, the truth of academia. No, I, I am super excited for this to come out. As soon as you guys sent me the email on it, I was like, ooh, how did I miss this? So yeah, I'm super glad to see this. And I cannot wait to see anything that you guys want to leak to the public about your book. And when it finally goes through, I would love if you guys would come on to the show and bring your co-authors with you and tell me all about it. But unfortunately, oh yes, <laughs> we do have to go. Thank you all very much for coming on to the show and making this yeah, a wonderful thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Kofi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A R C H Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly